You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 135. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by HomeChef.com. To try out Home Chef's meal prep delivery service and get a free meal for two with your first purchase, go over to homechef.com backslash lively and enter the code lively at checkout to get your free meal. At the end of the episode, I'll be speaking with Home Chef member Adele about her experience with the service. Now let's move on to today's episode. Today we are speaking with Mariana Lopez Gonzalez of elegirlavida.com. Mariana is from Mexico, and her blog, Elegir La Vida, is all about choosing life. I found out about Mariana through Life with Intention online because she's a member in class, and when I learned about her own personal journey she's been on in the last seven years, I was fascinated and knew that I needed to bring her story here to the show. And quite honestly, this is one of the most powerful episodes for many reasons, as you will soon find out. But I'll quickly just say that Mariana was just like many of us at 19 years old. She was someone who was in college and found herself with a small black dot in her right eye. She thought she needed to get glasses, so she went to go, you know, get it checked out. And one thing led to another so that a week later, she was in surgery with a brain tumor. For 23 minutes, she was resuscitated in order to even be on this planet right now, which is a miracle in and of itself. And along the recovery of that path from going from just a 19-year-old in graphic design school to almost dying to then recovering and learning how to do everything from picking up the remote control to swallowing to moving her arms and legs, all of that she had to relearn in a matter of weeks. It took several, several months. And now to this point, she is mostly recovered. However, one of the major lasting things that has still yet to be fully recovered and may never be fully recovered is her ability to eat and drink any liquids or any foods. Now. What that means is that she is now 26 years old, and she may have had her last meal at the age of 19. When I heard that, I knew that there has got to be so much that we can learn from this situation because it's so easy for us to say that we should be grateful for things like eating and drinking and being alive, but to actually hear someone share her story from actually experiencing these circumstances, I think is going to help put this into perspective in a whole new way. And honestly, it's just a beautiful story. I tear up at many points, as you'll hear. I wouldn't be surprised if others listening to this show do as well. But this powerful message that Mariana has to share with the beauty of her voice and her story is so powerful, and I am honored to bring it to you today. Let's go to the show. Mariana, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited. I cannot wait to dive into your story. But first, let's talk about your background and how you got to where you are. I was born in Puebla in Mexico, and I was born into a really loving family. Both my parents have always been, since they were, I think since they were dating, they have always been really concerned with social justice and like, I don't know, they're great human family overall. 
So uh, since I grew up in my family and also I, I went to a Jesuit school, so I've always been really interested in like the state of the world and how human relations works. I always grew up asking myself questions about life and about the world. I think that's what has led me to what I've been sort of learning and what I've been doing in my life right now, which is it has more to do with life in general and questions about life. And that's where I, I would like to put my professional development. And so let's talk about where you are today and what led you to where you are medically speaking. Well, in 2009, I was 19 and I was taking a summer course in the university. So about halfway through the course, I started seeing like a little black spot with my right eye. And I studied graphic design. So I was taking that class that we took with the architects. So we did a lot of like plans and maps and stuff like that. Visually, it was really hard. So I thought that maybe it was because of the class that I was starting to see that spot. All my uncles, my dad, my sister, my mom, everyone uses glasses. So I immediately thought that I would be needing glasses as well. But uh, as the sort of the spot grew bigger, we started getting more and more concerned. So we went to the doctor just to see if I needed glasses. And the doctor in the glass shop basically told me, no, that's not it. You have to go to see an optometrist. So we, we went to an, or, or an ophthalmologist, I think. And he checked me and he said, no, I think this is more serious. So he ordered an MRI. And I went to get that. We spent the whole day with tests and studies and at the doctor's. So at the end of the day, my mom told me, you know what, you go home, I'll wait for the results, you don't have to stay. Uh, looking back, I think my mom already suspected that there was something wrong, so that's why she wanted to be there first, to st sort of like protect me from the news, I don't know. So I went home with my sisters, I was a little bit nervous, I had always been a bit of a hypochondriac. So I was nervous. My, my sister, my younger sister, she's more calm than me. So she was calming me down. She was like, I don't think there's anything wrong. Don't worry. And basically the whole day passed and my mother didn't call or anything. So I think it was about seven at night or something like that. She called me and she told me that she was going to pick me up and we were going back to the doctors and that it was something really serious. So you can imagine I was really scared at that moment. <laughs> How did you react when she told you that? Well, I was really scared. My grandmother has always suffered from her eyesight and she's now, she has really poor sight. So I, immediately I thought that maybe that's what I had. And I was afraid that I was going to lose my eyesight or something like that. Actually, the first thought that came into my mind that I was really sad because we were going on a family vacation. And I was hoping that it didn't interfere with that vacation. That was my first thought, because my little sister, she's 11 years younger than me, so she was really excited to go. And I was like, I don't want to ruin that vacation for her. Wow. The first thing you think about when you're not sure if you're going to have your own eyesight is your little sister's vacation. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's very selfless of you. Yeah, I guess I had never seen it that way. <laughs> So then my mom came home 
And I went into the car and I couldn't take it anymore. So I told her, just tell me what I have. And she said, it's a brain tumor. Well, in that moment, I was shocked. I think you never think that you're going to get that sort of news. You hear about people that have cancer or that have tumors or that have sort of that kind of things. But you never think that it's going to be you that's going to have it. So immediately after my mom told me that, we both started crying in the car. And we were on our way to the doctors and we were crying in the, on the way in the car. And then I don't know exactly what happened, but sort of like a wave of calm rushed over me. And I stopped crying and I told myself, you're not going to get scared and everything is going to be okay. Where did that voice come from? I've never been sure where it came from, but I just know it was uh, it was a voice that came, like at the same time it came from outside, but it also came from within. So I stopped crying and my mom didn't stop crying. And we met my father at the doctor's office. And I remember being really calm and like already processing what was coming in the future. So after that, we had the doctor's appointment. We actually went to my pediatrician, the one that had always seen me because my mother wanted me to speak to him because he knows me well and everything. But my dad told me it was only a week since we got the news to when I got the surgery. We saw different doctors and I was going to get the surgery here in Puebla, which is where I live. But in the end, one of the doctors I wanted to see that was really recommended was in Mexico City. And he didn't have any appointments. So we said, okay, it's okay, we'll stay in Puebla. And on the last day, when we had already decided where I was getting the surgery, um, that doctor called us and he said he had just had a cancellation and that we could go that afternoon if we wanted to. So I think we sort of took that kind of like, not exactly a signal, but like, I don't know, the timing was really perfect and he just got a cancellation. We should go see that doctor. So we went. He took a look at my test results. He told me, you're 19. It's really, the tumor is really big. You lost your eyesight really quick. I couldn't see anymore with my right eye. And he told me, because where the tumor is located, we don't know what could happen even tomorrow. So he said, I'll do the surgery tomorrow morning. So we went back to Puebla, which is about a two-hour drive from Mexico City. We came back. We put our bags. I had my, my last meal, as you call it. And then we slept. And in the, I think it was like 4 a.m. or something, we went back to Mexico City. And I had my surgery. And my life has never been the same since. <laughs> All right. Before we get into what happened after you woke up from the surgery, what was that week in between where you go from being a graphic designer in a graphic design class that thinks that, you know, I'm just looking at stuff and I've been straining my eyes too much. Maybe I need glasses to you're going into surgery because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in one week. Were you still calm that rest of the time after that wave of peace rushed over you or did you have more emotions in between there as well? I think 
it was so fast and we went doctor after doctor after doctor that I didn't even have time to get scared. All of the doctors were really optimistic about the surgery. They were like, no, it's a really easy surgery. We go in and in two weeks you're out and that's it. So, I mean, well, relatively easy, you know. I always laugh when they say that because it's like, it's the brain. It's not exactly like super easy. <laughs> but they always like, no, no, it's really simple. <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's really simple, you know, just they go in my brain, take the tumor out, and that's it. <laughs> what was the diagnosis they told you you were going to deal with before you got the surgery? Well, actually, one of the doctors told me it was a tumor that's really dangerous, and that was just one of the doctors. The rest of them told me they can't do a diagnosis until they go in, and they send the, a sample of the tumor to the pathologist so that he can determine what kind of tumor it is. And I've talked to many people and they've told me that, true, you, you have to go in before you can give an actual diagnosis because you don't know what type of tumor it's going to be. But because of my age and because I didn't present any symptoms, I had never had even like headaches, nothing. So the doctors were really optimistic about, why, about the, the outcome of the surgery. They were like, no, we don't think it's going to be complicated. It's going to be really quick and you can go home. I, I even asked him, like, can I go back to school after summer is over? And I think that was my, my main concern. And he was like, yeah, don't worry. Uh, you can go back. It's just going to be like a couple of weeks. So I think I went in the surgery with that in mind. It's going to be really easy and it's just going to be a couple of weeks in the hospital, which I think actually really helped because I went in with a positive outcome in mind. The surgery itself got really complicated. I think it was many more hours than it was supposed to be. I, I, don't, rem I, I don't remember right now how many hours my mom has told me it was, but it was really long. I lost a lot of blood. Well, it got really complicated. They weren't expecting it to be so complicated because the type of tumor that it was is actually made of like veins and arteries and like it's all blood. So when they went in, I started losing a lot of blood and that's what complicated things. And when you came out of it, what did they tell you? I actually don't remember when I came out. My mom wrote me a journal when I was in the hospital and she wrote every day since the diagnosis. So basically what I know that happened is because I have read it in my mom's journal. I remember like before going in and then the first thing I remember is being in the ICU and thinking like that's the first memory I have uh, opening my eyes and thinking I didn't die. That was my first thought or at least that's the first thought that I remember. What was your emotion when you had that thought? I think I was relieved, and I think that's when I realized that I had actually been scared. I didn't allow the fear to overpower the positive mindset that I decided to have. But in that moment, I realized, wow, I really did think I was going to die. Looking back on it, you did think you were going to die, even though they told you it's a simple procedure, you'll be back in school in a few weeks. I'm not sure if I thought that before the surgery, but maybe I'm thinking that 
I did wake up before that and there's no memory of that time. And that's when I got scared that I would die. The week after the surgery, I had a cardiorespiratory arrest. They were in doing like resuscitation maneuvers 23 minutes. You did die. Well, yeah, I think you can say that I've always, well, that, that's a thing I've always wondered because a lot of doctors had told me that 23 minutes is a really long time. And I think the standard time is like 12 minutes or something. So that, that's always made me wonder like why they kept going 23 minutes. And I've always thought like if they had stopped at 15 or at 20 or at 22, they could have come out and told my parents, uh, we're sorry, we did everything with Thailand, we couldn't do anything. And no one would have told them anything because they did all they could do. So that's always been a question of mine, like what made them keep going? And, and one doctor once told me that they can feel when the patient sort of like is still here. And they felt that in me so they kept going until I came back so I don't know it's a like a really spiritual experience as well I guess I'm like crying over here <laughs> like can't imagine just like you said what if they had stopped one minute before yeah that's a question that was in my mind for such a long time until my mom told me stop <laughs> stop with that question you're not going to get anywhere and it's not important, you know, the thing is that you're here and that's it. The first thought you have is you're relieved because you're not dead. Yeah, that's the first thought I remember, but I've read in my mom's journal that I didn't wake up right away, sort of like unconscious for a long time, but that's the first thought that I remember having. I spent six weeks in the hospital, so people have asked me, like, well, didn't you get angry that the doctor told you it was going to be two weeks? And you, it's been four weeks or five weeks or six weeks and you're still here. And I've always said, well, I didn't get angry because I felt so bad and was, I was such in bad shape that I didn't think there was anywhere I should be. The hospital was the only place. Yeah, if you feel that bad, you probably need all the help you can get. Being at the hospital is where you're going to get that. So what was the recovery period like? Well, that I actually remember one time. I think that was in the ICU. I get the memories mixed up, but I think that was in the ICU. One day, I didn't even realize that I hadn't eaten in days. I had the feeding tube. But one day, the nurse came in with a, like a Gerber, like baby food. And um, she gave me, like she crushed one of the pills that I had to take. And she put it in a spoon with baby food. And she gave me the spoon and she said, like, here. And in that moment, I remember thinking, thank God, finally, I'm going to taste something. And that's what makes me remember that I hadn't tasted anything since the surgery ended. So I remember she gave me the spoon and I took the like a spoonful of like with the baby food and I tried to swallow and I couldn't swallow. And I tried really, really hard to do it. And I remember I couldn't, like, like it was closed or something. And I just remember, like, I was trying so hard that all the food came out of my mouth. And the nurse looked at me and she said, okay, no, never mind. And she was like, she just took everything away and, and that's it. 
And then after that, I spent like, well, I had a feeding tube and I started swallowing therapy, which I didn't even know existed or was possible to have. But I started swallowing therapy in the hospital. And that's where I knew that I couldn't swallow in that moment, but I thought that I was going to be able to do it again at some point. After the hospital, I went into a rehabilitation center and I took therapies every day. It was like a really great center. Uh, Unfortunately, I had a really good medical insurance that covered that so I could stay there and they had really good therapists. And I think about halfway through the time I was there, I went four months there. I think two months in, I asked my swallowing therapist, I I was sort of being dramatic, like I was indulging myself, allowing me to be dramatic. And I was like crying and telling her, will I ever eat again? Will I ever swallow again? But in my mind, I was thinking she was going to say, yeah, of course. But I was still being dramatic because I was feeling dramatic. And she told me, well, I think you are. And in that moment, I realized that there was a possibility that I wasn't going to be able to swallow again. I think I didn't even think about it as a possibility until she told me that. And then I started crying, like really crying. And I wasn't being dramatic anymore. I was actually sad. And I asked her, so there's a possibility that I won't be able to eat anymore. And she said, well, there's a possibility, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I think you're going to be able to recover. Wait a minute. So you waited two months before asking that question to someone? I would imagine that would be the first thing I'd ask the lady with the Gerber spoon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my whole recovery, I think all my focus was on working really hard to get better and to get out of there as soon as possible. I always like to joke that I've always been a nerd in school. I was always straight A's and uh, always like the teacher's pet and that kind of student. So I've always told everyone, like, being such a nerd helped me through recovery. (laughs) Because you're a really good student? Yeah, because the therapist told me, like, do, I don't know, you have to lift your leg five times. And I was like, okay, I guess I have to lift my leg five times because the therapist told me I had to do it. (laughs) So I did without questioning. And then, I don't know, uh, I saw one of the patients that entered after me like a month or I don't remember after me and he never wanted to do his therapy and he was always fighting with the therapist. When I saw him, I was like, oh, I I could have said no. Like there's no grades here. No one was going to tell me anything. But I didn't even think no as an option because, well, that's not how I work usually. So I guess that's why I didn't even ask anything. I was just like, I'm working, I'm going to get better, and that's going to be it. But, you know, not eating gets really difficult. I I don't think I asked, like, when I'm going to walk again or when I'm going to be able to use my hands again. What I wanted to know was when I'm going to be able to eat again because that was the most hard of it all. So how long did it take you to do the rest of the things, like walking and lifting your hands? Well, as I said, I spent four months in the rehabilitation uh, facility. And when I was out and I came back to Puebla, I was still in a wheelchair. I could walk like 10 steps 
or things like that. I remember when I, uh, when the first time I gave like three steps and it was such a big deal and it was like, oh my God, I worked three steps. <laughs> and um, so when I came back, I was walking a few steps, but I was still in a wheelchair. I could see it because I couldn't even see it at first. You know, I could see it. I could, I could stand, um, but I couldn't walk really long distances. I could talk because I spent months. I wasn't able to talk because I had a tracheostomy because I couldn't breathe without that. How long could you not talk? I think it was a couple months. You couldn't speak for a few months. You couldn't walk for a few months. I was thinking the way you described it initially that you were just in swallowing therapy for four months, but this is really getting your life back for four months. Yeah, yeah, it was completely. At first I was like laying down, then I could sit again. Uh, I remember once in the hospital and I, there wasn't anyone in the room because they were going to transfer me to the rehabilitation center. So my parents were doing all the paperwork and stuff. And I was alone in the room and one of my therapists entered and I was like, well, I'm going to watch TV, you know, I, there's nothing more I can do. So this was one of my therapists that I didn't like very much. <laughs> so he came in and I asked him for the remote for, to watch TV because I was bored. And he gave it to me and he said, well, this is going to be fun. And I was like, okay, I didn't know what he meant. And I couldn't even pick up the remote to, like, turn on the TV. But you didn't know that when you asked for the remote. I didn't know that when I asked for the remote. And that was his response? How callous. Yeah, that was his response. Actually, he once, uh, when I was uh, going, to the, going to be released from the hospital, he told me that I, was, that I nearly died. I didn't know about the respiratory arrest and he was the one who told me, and he told me that I was about to die. And he told me, well, like, you, you should be dead because of the time that you spent like that. So I got really scared, and I didn't want them to release me from the hospital because I thought that I was going to die if they let me out. But that's why I didn't like him very much, <laughs> I guess. Understandable. So no one mentioned that you were on the table for 23 minutes either? Well, no, I don't think my parents wanted me to know. I don't know. I, or maybe they did tell me and I didn't remember. The whole time is very confusing. <laughs> the whole time I was in the hospital. And this is, I mean, like we said, just a few, if we zoom back just a little bit, you're in a graphic design class in college and now you're learning how to sit up and hold a remote control. Yeah. Yeah. How did you process that? As you're not able to talk, you're not able to communicate with the people in the room? Yeah, well, I don't know. I think I just felt like that was where I was supposed to be in the moment and was just taking... I mean, I'm not going to say I was happy all the time or that I didn't have any frustration. There were days that were really frustrating and I, I spent crying and I, I was like wondering, you know, why is this happening and why is this happening to me? But I tried to keep positive. And I think that what really helped me recover was the people around me. I always had people asking for me, going to visit, writing to me, calling. My parents were always there, family, friends. My mother called it the love shield 
which my dad and I sort of made fun of her because we thought it was so corny. But it's true. It really was like a love shield that protected me and that made me stronger. So I've always told them, like, the reason why I was working so hard and why I wanted to recover wasn't just to recover. What I wanted was, I always said, I stayed here because I wanted to stay here with you. With, with my family, with my friends. That's the reason I stayed. <laughs> there is no other reason. So I think what motivated me was the people around me and my mom. And I don't know, during the time I wasn't able to speak, for example, it was really hard. And my mom tried really hard and, and uh, because I could only like move my mouth and she tried to guess what I was saying. And sometimes it got really frustrating because... Well, obviously, she didn't always understand, you know. I remember, I, I love the, the show Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I'm a fan, and I always tell everyone that sort of like my version of comfort food is Gilmore Girls. So when I'm sick or stuff, I watch Gilmore Girls. So in the hospital, my mom took all the seasons in DVDs so I could watch them. And I remember I got frustrated at her because I always mouthed Gilmore Girls because I wanted to watch Gilmore Girls and she never understood. Oh, no. And I got really frustrated because I was like, I, that's the thing I ask for every day. How can she not understand me? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you get your voice back and you're getting on your way to walking or doing that therapy. But now to go back to the swallowing, you finally ask about that piece because there's so many moving parts in this you just hadn't thought to ask about the swallowing or the eating specifically okay and then she says she thinks it might be possible but you're not even sure how did that feel I think that's like one of the things that's taking me the longest to accept and when she told me that I was I think I was depressed for days and um, I remember telling my mom like I'm not going to leave my room, like even when I go back, when I go back home, I'm not going to leave my room ever until I can swallow again. Like I was determined, it it was even sort of like a tantrum, I see it now, (laughs) like until I'm able to eat again, I'm not going to go out, I'm going to stay inside and I'm not going to see anyone. And I told my mom that, and I was like, determined, like, I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to be able to live if I can't do it anymore. Well, obviously, that's impossible. (laughs) Obviously, as time went by and I started accepting it and accepting the news and everything, and my therapists, they helped a lot too until I got to the point where I realized I can't hide from life. You know, I just had to keep living, embracing my circumstances, and I'm not going to hide. Uh, That's no way to live. Why is it that you cannot swallow? The reason, like medically speaking, I don't know what triggered the problem. If it was the surgery or the arrest or the tracheostomy, I don't know. There are a lot of motives that could have led to the dysphagia, which is how it's called. I guess that's how it's pronounced. I am not sure. Um, 
but there is this thing that's called the epiglottis, which that's how it's pronounced in Spanish, and it's written the same way in English, so I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's like a little door, I like to say, that covers the trachea when you eat, so that when you eat, no food goes into, um, or no saliva, anything you swallow, nothing goes into the lungs, it goes into the stomach. When you're not swallowing and you're breathing, it covers the esophagus so that the air goes into the lungs and it doesn't go into the stomach. That door, <laughs> to call it like that, my epiglottis doesn't work. So and anything I swallow goes straight to my lungs. Um, the first time that the nurse in with the baby food, I couldn't actually physically swallow, like I couldn't do the movement to swallow. Now I can do it. I can swallow. I can swallow anything. I, I, I eat. I could, I could swallow if I wanted. But the thing is that it wouldn't go into my stomach. It would go directly through my lungs. So that's why I can't have any food through my mouth. People often ask me, well, not even water. And actually liquids are more dangerous because they slip <laughs> easily. So if you swallow them, they go straight down, as opposed to a solid where if you swallow it and it gets stuck, you can cough and get out. So that's the reason why I can't have any food through my mouth and I need a feeding tube through which I get all my food. And your liquids. And my liquids, yeah. Well, the food is basically all in liquid form. We blend everything. We use a blender to mix all of the food, fruits, vegetables, chicken, milk, bread. And um, then I pass it through the feeding tube and that's the way I, I get my food and my liquids. So we're going from you saying that you're not going to leave your room because of this news to now living your life. What are the steps in between not leaving the room and being where you are now? Well, when I came back, and uh, when I say I came back, I mean to Puebla and to my home. <laughs> I wanted to see my friends and I wanted to see my family because I was six months away from everyone. And the people that came to visit, well, I only saw them like for a few hours and in a hospital room or it's not the same, you know, it's not like going to your grandparent's house or going to a friend's house. So I think the whole not leaving and not seeing anyone sort of disappeared really quickly because I I can be really introverted and I'm, I enjoy like time for myself, but I'm also really a people person. So I always want to be where all the people are. And if there's a family event, I want to go and things like that. So I think that was never a true option. Like I told you, I think it was more like a tantrum that I'm not going to leave my room. So that I never actually did. You know, I always went out and saw people and everything. But where I did have uh, or where I did hide from was food. So, for example, if there was going to be a, I don't know, a family gathering on a Sunday and we were going to my grandparents' house, we arrived a little bit later so that we arrived when everyone was done eating. And we specifically asked everyone that they put any food away so that when I came or, or when we arrived, there was no food outside that I could actually see. And that went on, I don't remember how long, but that really went on for a while. So 
I didn't want to see any food or be in the presence of food or of people eating. When I was in my house and it was dinner time, I went into my room. And when my family was done eating, then I went outside again. And it was until I met Claudia, who was my swallowing therapist here in Puebla. She was the one that told me, you're crazy. You have to sit with everyone and you have to be with everyone as they are eating because it's a way of sharing with people and you can't hide from it. So she was the one that actually told me that and that made me see that I was being was ridiculous, <laughs> not, not wanting to see anything and hiding like that. So I started doing it. And the funny thing is that I thought it would be harder and I thought it would be sadder and I would be more depressed if I saw everyone eating. And it actually was the other way around. Like once I stopped hiding and once I decided to be open to life and be open to everyone, that's when I started getting less sad and that's why I started accepting my circumstances when I started sharing those experiences. And I, I don't know, now I even like to watch people eat and to watch people enjoy their food. And I don't know, when we go out to eat, I even like, I, I like to read the menu and I'd be like, I would order this. Someone order this or something. And I like to watch people enjoy their food. I actually like to cook myself. I like to bake. And I really like when I bake and I see people enjoying what I did. And it makes me happy. That actually reminds me of one of, I know you're a part of Life with Intention online. And there was another member of the class who wrote me personally about an experience she was having that kind of reminds me of what you just shared, which through a different lens. So for her, she was having infertility issues. So she was having trouble having a child. And I asked her if she was avoiding being around children in her life right now. And I asked her to think about what her values might be. And she figured out her values, I think were nurturing. And I forget if the few others that she had, but she said she had been avoiding her godchildren or nieces and nephews because she thought it would be more painful to be around them as she was not able to have a baby herself. And it was kind of a, a bold statement to say, <laughs> my suggestion being, I think you should try being around children more and using your values in your current circumstances, because I didn't really know what her reaction was going to actually be to doing that. But she found the same thing that you're sharing, that by actually engaging with children and living her values given her current circumstances right now, even though it's not how her she'd ultimately like to be a mother and she'd like to have her own child. Fun fact, she is actually pregnant or has had her child by this point. But at that time, that really helped her tap into all the joy and fulfillment she could have because as she was avoiding what her values were and not adapting them to her circumstances, she was actually much more unhappy than really tapping into the types of fulfillment she could get from living the values where she was given the situation. Yeah, I think I found that actually in the class, one of my values was courage. And my intention was the courage to embrace uncertainty. And I think that's really important because when you decide to embrace uncertainty and realize that we don't know what's going to happen next, that's when we can start accepting where we are now and yeah I think it's, it's funny because if you think about it logically you would think no of course it's going to be more sad or more difficult but it's not and I think the act of sharing 
with people is the thing that makes it easier. Instead of being in your room alone. Exactly. Yeah. Which was your initial ego's reaction is I'm just going to remove myself from life instead of trying to adapt to my circumstances. Yeah, I guess if we put it in terms of ego and intuition, my ego was the one that was always telling me to stay inside and not go out and I'm not going to do anything until I can. And my intuition was always pulling me outside. (laughs) Do you now get to taste anything? Well, yeah, actually, that was also because of what my therapist here in Puebla. Um, I had asked previously one of my doctors if it would be okay if I tasted things, not swallowing them, just tasting them, because I like to cook and because I was telling him it's important to try what you are cooking to know if it's turning out okay. And he had told me that it was really dangerous to do it because there still could be some infiltration in the lungs. But then one of my therapists, well, Claudia, she told me, well, it is really dangerous when you are a patient with dementia, like a really uh, an older adult that has periods that where they are not really aware 100%, or when you're a little kid that you don't understand the actual consequences of doing it. But because you are neither, you do understand. To that point, we had been working for a couple of months and I had actually regained my sensibility in my throat because I I had actually lost it as well. So I couldn't feel anything so that if there was anything that accidentally went into my lung, I couldn't feel it. But after a while that I had been working with her, I had regained that sensibility and I did feel when anything could potentially go or or when I needed to cough or when there was anything uh, strange in my throat. So she told me, you can do it really carefully. You can have a taste of something and then just not swallow it. So I started doing that and I still do. As I said in my post, um, I'm no doctor, I'm no therapist, so I, I can't really say like that's what I would advise to anyone in my situation. But in my particular case, I have learned how to control it. And I also have learned to listen to my body and know when it's okay to do it and when it's not. And when I'm feeling that maybe I'm getting sick and I feel my throat a little bit weird, so I I, I don't do it. And when I'm feeling I know I'm okay, then I do. So it's just For me, it has been a matter of learning how to listen to my body and what my body is telling me. Have you ever had a situation where it did go down into your lungs? Yeah, actually just once in more than six years. It has been just once. It didn't go down to my lungs, but I did swallow it accidentally. So I swallowed like a little piece. It wasn't even that big. And I coughed and coughed and coughed and coughed. And I think I got everything out. But I still got really scared and I went to the hospital so they could check me out and I didn't have anything. I was fine. And actually that time my boyfriend, he told me, well, don't stop trying stuff because I know you and I know that you get scared and then you are going to decide to stop. But don't let this stop you and don't let this make you hide again. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I promise. (laughs) I won't hide again. So the next time I just did it really carefully and I, have, I haven't I have had any problems since that time. Do you think it's ever possible that you will be able to use your esophagus again? 
Well, I think it, it is possible. My therapist, she told me the story about another therapist that she read a book about. I, I actually don't know what book it was, but she told me that she had her patient for 20 years. And she's, she has documented how during 20 years, she noticed improvements the whole 20 years. Because doctors usually say, you know, what you haven't gained back in a year, it's not coming back. Because it, it's really difficult. And the longer it, it passes, the harder it gets. And it, that is actually true. You know, more time, it's more difficult that it will come back, but it's not impossible. So I think now I just try not to think about it. I, I'm just kind of like accepting that this is what my life is. And I try not to think if in the future I'm going to be able to eat or not. Because when I... When I spend too much time thinking about it and being like too hope, not, not hopeful, but like, yeah, like always thinking, oh, maybe this time or maybe in a year, maybe in a month, maybe then every time that that time passed and I, I said, in a year, I'm going to be able to eat again. And a year passed and I wasn't going to be, to be able to eat again. Then I got really depressed again and it, it was like starting over. So I just decided I'm going to, accept that that's how my life is right now and I'm not going to be wondering when or if I'm going to be able to do it and if someday I am then I'm going to be really happy but if not then I've already accepted the circumstances and I've already found a way to live happy. <laughs> By just fully accepting my circumstances now and living my values as I can right now Yes, you would love to swallow. And I'm sure you are. Are you still doing the exercises that may help you to do so? Yeah, I'm still doing it. And I'm actually thinking of going back to therapy because my therapist, she gave me some exercises that I could do. But as life goes back to quote unquote normal, then you start like getting back in the routine and you start forgetting about that kind of thing. So I don't want to forget and I don't want to stop the work. And I think that it would be healthy for me to keep going maybe once a week or once every two weeks just to like keep in check and have everything, you know, under control and still doing my exercises. And I guess it's sort of like going to the gym for your throat. <laughs> so you're in Mexico. Yeah. And I think everywhere in the world, food is a really important part of culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know I love Mexican food here in the US. So I can only imagine how popular food and culture and community is where you are. Mm -hmm. So how do you live in a culture that in a world really that celebrates food without being able to partake? Well, that was really hard at first. And I actually wrote about it. I had a blog. I've had many blogs. <laughs> and uh, I had a blog that I wrote when I was in the in the rehabilitation center and everything and once I wrote a post about how people always told me like no it's gonna be okay like it doesn't matter that you you're not able to eat and you know calm down and stuff like that so once I wrote a post that was like everyone keeps telling me to calm down but then look around and everything is about food all the time and even, you know, like uh, there is a joke about grandmother, and, like they always offer you food and you say no and they're like, no, eat, eat. <laughs> they're always telling you to eat. So 
that was really hard and um, it really does revolve around food a lot and also I think we as a culture tend to be really social so we use any excuse we can to get together and, and most families have at least like once a week uh, family dinner uh, but like with the whole family you know uh, grandparents uncles aunts and everyone and um, that's really common here and or going in the afternoon to get a cup of coffee or I don't know like we're doing stuff all the time and there's parties all the time and gatherings all the time and it's not so much that it's about the food it's about the people but gatherings are always revolved around the food <laughs> So I guess it was just a matter of processing the experiences as the other like everyday experiences, you know, like dinner at my house. Well, that had to be a, a process of acceptance and of going slow and sitting down and embracing the situation. And the same was with gatherings and social gatherings. Uh, it was little by little and at first it was really difficult and I would go to a party and I would be really happy and I would enjoy the party but then I would go back home and cry all night because I couldn't eat anything and then maybe the next party I enjoyed it a little bit more and I only cried a little bit when I got home and then maybe the next time I was a little bit sad but I didn't cry you know it was like a gradual process. I was thinking about what this experience would be like to just sit there at like a wedding and not eat the food. And just to tell them, no, I, I don't need the plate. I don't need the bread. I don't need all the stuff. Or to go to a restaurant and say, no, I'm not going to order something. Well, actually, what I found, and I, I found it through one of my blogs that I had, is that humor has helped me process a lot of things. So I try to see the humor in everything, and I make jokes about everything. And that has helped me a lot. So for example, now that you are using the wedding example, once I, well, this happened once. I was in, I went to downtown Puebla with a couple of friends. We went to a restaurant and they brought shrimp cocktail like on the house because that's what they do in that place. And they brought it in the table and, well, the waiter put mine down and I said, oh, no, thanks. I don't need it. <laughs> and he was like, okay, because, you know, it's free. So I don't think anyone turns it down. And my friend looks at me and he's like, why did you do that? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to eat it. And he's like, no, but I was. So from that time on, I, I learned that when I go out and when I go to weddings and stuff like that, I always say to people, like, you have to tell me if I want to eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> so that you can get it for them. Yeah. So when I go out, for example, with my boyfriend, that's always the case. And we went to a wedding recently and uh, we were at the table with all his friends and everyone was fighting about who was going to get my food. So it's really funny. And that, I don't know, like humor has really helped me process a lot of things. And when you see the humor in things, they sort of get easier and they get more light. The whole experience is more, more lighthearted and, and funny. And then you laugh and then you're not sad anymore because you're laughing about everyone fighting over who gets to eat your plate you know it's it's funny <laughs> yeah it takes what could be something that you could have shame about and makes it an asset when it comes to the connection and sharing with your friends yeah exactly <laughs> so i know that your boyfriend has tried your feeding tube formula so what is it like it's pink why is it pink yeah because it, it is a different color sometimes it's green sometimes it's orange and sometimes it's pink actually pink is a new color it, it has a like a year 
because my mom likes to change the recipe that my nutritionist gave me because she gives me like the standard recipe like carrots and chicken and stuff like that but my mom always said no like you should have more variety because your stomach is going to get used to just one thing and if you ever eat again or something or even to get more nutrients or more variety in your diet so she sometimes changes the vegetables so the pink one has beets in it and that's why it's pink and what did your boyfriend say it tasted like he said it tastes sweet that's why he said there, there's a cookie really famous cookie that's called maria maria cookies i actually linked them in my post um because everyone everyone knows them here it's like the standard like I don't know. I guess you could compare it with a graham cracker. It's it, it, not in flavor, but in that it's really common. And you can use either bread or that cookie in my formula. So he says it tastes like that. It actually smells like Maria cookies when you smell it. Only him and his brother and another friend have tried it, like why it tastes like. But many people ask me to smell it to see what it smells like. And they always like say, oh, it smells like, um, and I offer them the answer. I'm like, Maria cookies? And they're like, yes. I'm like, yeah, it has Maria cookies. <laughs> so that's, it, it tastes, he says it doesn't taste bad. I guess like a kind of like a sweet puree or something. I, I have, that's one thing I haven't tried, for example. <laughs> Maybe I should. Have you ever tried just making something that you really want to eat and then blending it up and putting in the feeding tube? Not exactly, but sort of. Once I went to New York, I went to a college. Uh, in college, we went uh, to New York for like a study trip. We went to different design studios and stuff. And I went with my classmates. And uh, that was actually the first time traveling without my parents. So it was really exciting. And I had my food. And we were staying in a Hamilton Inn and um, it didn't have like for breakfast it just had a bar with coffee and cereal and stuff like that and I went down really early in the mornings to pour hot water into my into my formula to make it liquid and then have like breakfast <laughs> but one morning I went down and the coffee smelled really good <laughs> And I really craved the coffee because I really like coffee and it smelled so good. And I was like, what if instead of warm water, I pour coffee in my formula? So I poured coffee and it's, it sounds funny, but it was the best it has tasted. I know it, I don't taste it, but the, just knowing that it had coffee felt really good. Like psychologically, I don't know. I, it made me feel like it tastes good, even if I wasn't tasting it. And uh, sometimes I put juice or stuff like that. I haven't actually made like a dish, but liquid stuff like coffee or juice or um, there's like a little uh, drink called Yakult that's really sweet and I really like it. And sometimes I put that in and it makes me really happy. <laughs> like I was actually eating it. I don't know. It's funny. What is your thought now that you know that there may be a chance you may never taste so many different foods? I don't know. It's, it's not really sad anymore. I guess because I do try certain things. Like I wrote, I don't try anything, everything because there are some things that are harder. Like, for example, ice cream. I don't try ice cream because it's really liquid. So 
it's really difficult to do it. Or for example, popcorn. I, I love popcorn. And when I go to the movies, I always want popcorn, but I have tried it on separate occasions and it's really difficult because it has little pieces and it's really hard. So I am always like, oh, I want to try it, but I know I can't. But I don't know, I just get, it's not so sad anymore. It was really sad before, but now it's not anymore. I guess the more time it passes, the more acceptance there is. So the less hard it is to to realize that kind of things. I know you think a lot about your last meal. Yeah. Do you mind sharing what that feels like for you to know that you've had? And how old are you now? I'm 26. 26 now, but at 19, you effectively may have had your last meal. That's crazy because people always ask you, you know, what would your last meal be? You actually have one. Yes. And that actually makes me a little bit angry. Well, not anymore. I'm just, sometimes I regret that last meal in particular. But the thing is, I didn't know it was going to be my last meal. So, but because the night before we went to Mexico and for the surgery, I was in my house and my mom was like, you have to eat something. You have to eat (laughs) because you, you can't eat anything before surgery. And she told me, you don't know how long after you're going to be able to eat. And obviously she wasn't talking about the particular problem I have. She was just talking about, you know, how long the surgery is going to be and until you wake up and everything. It's going to be many hours before you can have another meal. But I was so nervous that I didn't want to eat anything. So I just made myself a sandwich. But I remember it was just like bread, mayonnaise, ham, bread. Like it wasn't even like a really great sandwich and some chocolate chip cookies. So I ate like half the sandwich and half the bag of cookies and I couldn't get myself to eat anymore because I was too nervous. So I just ate that. My mom was like, at least finish that. I didn't even finish it. And that was my last meal. (laughs) So now when I think about it, I, I always think like, if I had known that was going to be my last meal, I would have treated it differently. But the thing is that it's not even just that meal. In general, I was kind of like, I was difficult with food. I was really special. Like if there was a little bit or a little thing that I didn't like, I didn't eat it. Like if I t- tasted a little bit of onion, I was like, no, I don't want it anymore. Or stuff like that. Or I didn't finish my meals and stuff like that. And Now that I think about it, I think I should have appreciated food more when I had the chance to appreciate it. So when I think about that, I tell people, well, you should like appreciate everything you have because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So appreciate what's happening today because that's what happened to me. I didn't appreciate food as much. And now that I look back, I think, well, I should have. I should have eaten everything uh, gladly and I should have uh, taken advantage of what I could do when I could do it. Now I can't and I can't take that back. So now I try to appreciate what I do have now so that I don't have that feeling in the future. 
I know. I actually have told people about your story many times leading up to this interview. And I'm saying, and I tell them like why I'm interviewing. And, and I say, it's so easy for us to say, be grateful for everything. Be grateful that you can eat your food. Be grateful for your food. <laughs> but it doesn't mean the same thing if I say it than if you say it, right? It's easy for people, all of us, I think, to just say, yeah, but... I know that, but not really take it seriously. But when I speak to you as someone who is 26 and at 19 had your last meal, perhaps, it means something different. It makes you really think about all of those coffee dates you've ever had or those networking events or just waking up in the morning and swallowing water when you brush your teeth. Yeah. I think that you really help share and put that into perspective in a way that's really hard to grapple or even grasp for without thinking that it's possible. Yeah, people have told me that hearing about it helps them put things in perspective. And that's why I decided to start sharing my story and start writing my blog and start start speaking because I once I wrote in my first blog <laughs> Once I wrote, well, I have been learning many things and I have a new appreciation for life. And, uh, and But I had to go through this really hard, difficult experience in order to do so. So I'm going to write and share my story so that you don't have to go through a difficult experience in order to appreciate life and to look at life in a new way. So... I don't know the way I see it is I'm trying to have everyone love life and celebrate life as much as I do without them having to go through anything as bad as I went through. You know, you can always decide to start celebrating life. You don't need to wait for something to happen. You can just start right now to say, okay, I'm going to start celebrating life. Just because I want to celebrate life, I, I don't need anything horrible to happen or I don't need a particular experience or I don't need anything to happen. You know, I, I don't need to wait until I can eat in order to start celebrating life that I think anyone can relate. I don't need to get that job or I don't need to get that married or have babies or get that car in order to start celebrating life. I can celebrate life as I walk the journey towards that that I'm working for. That is so beautiful. <laughs> I get tears in my eyes. Okay, so, whew. <laughs> so is there anything in particular that you are actually really more grateful for now than you were before? I think it's not that I wasn't grateful before, but I look at it with new eyes. <laughs> I've learned that the most important thing in life is the people that surround us. And that has been a really deep um, learning for me because it's not that I didn't appreciate it before. It's not that I didn't love my family before or, or my friends. But I have a new appreciation for what that love can bring into your life. And uh, I think we have to love courageously and just not think about it twice. <laughs> Some, I think, I don't know, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability and how important it is. And I think because we are, we find it so hard to be vulnerable, sometimes we don't love completely. We have reservations. We are scared to give everything we have. And I think I've learned that we shouldn't be scared and we should have 
we should love and give everything courageously every day because that's the way to celebrate life just giving yourself to life and to other people and to obviously without forgetting yourself i think love is the most important thing in all aspects you have to love yourself you have to love your family love your friends you have to love life you have to love what you do just make love the force that leads your life so beautifully put. So what's your advice for anyone who may face a recent diagnosis with something that will change their life forever, perhaps in a similar way or not in exactly the same ways as your own? What would you tell them? First, give yourself the chance to process everything and give yourself the chance to feel sad and to feel scared and to feel frustrated because you are allowed to feel that way. And it's understandable. And of course, you're going to feel scared. And of course, you're going to feel sad or, or frustrated. But just don't let that, that fear or those negative feelings to overpower everything and to cover your life, you know. Don't give in to that fear. Just accept that it's there. But don't let it overpower you. What has to be more important is the positive outlook and the love for your life has to be greater than your fear. I think that's the most important. And what would you tell someone who has a friend or family member who's received a serious health diagnosis and isn't sure how they can be the most supportive? Um, I like that question because uh, I've actually gotten that question before because I sometimes talk about how it was difficult for me, my relationship with certain therapists or nurses or even friends or, or people that know me that did certain things that maybe I didn't like or that I felt were condescending, for example. So I always say the best um, thing that we can do is communicate. And the communication goes both ways. So I think the first thing for someone that has a family member or a friend is to ask go to that person and ask them how they feel and how they need you to act towards them or to act around them because everyone processes information or processes news in a different way and there is no one way or one correct way to treat people. So I think the most important thing is to go and ask and ask them how you feel, what are you thinking and be positive like be understanding of the fear, but don't encourage it. You have to be positive around that person. But mainly, yeah, just asking. And I think it works both ways. And I think people have to be open to asking how they want to feel. And the people that are going through the situation have to be open about talking about it. And what doubts or internal resistance are you currently facing in your life? Well, I think I've always had sort of issues with expectations <laughs> and uh, that goes expectations from myself and expectations, external expectations. I'm the oldest daughter and I'm the oldest granddaughter <laughs> in both families from my mother's side and from my father's side. Um, so I'm the first, the first daughter, the first granddaughter. And that puts a certain pressure in, not that people or that my family put the pressure, but on myself, I put that pressure because I'm the one that gives the example. And also, 
my both my mom and my dad are really successful in their fields and are really loved by people and are really admired by people. So I've always felt that I have to like follow in their path and feel their shoes. <laughs> Again, not that they asked me to, but I put that pressure on myself. So right now, and with the Life with Intention Online and with the things that I've learned and many, many things I've read and podcasts and, and like personal development stuff I've been going through, I've learned how you have to put yourself first and how you have to live the way you want to live. Yeah, like you want to live life in a certain way and that's okay. Don't live your life according to what other people want. So that has always been really hard for me. And I think now that I'm starting many projects and my blog and, and my different projects that I have, the struggle that I always have is that I sometimes wonder, like, first, am I going to be good enough? Is it going to be the way I want it to be? Is it going to go the way I want it to go? And second, am I doing this because I want to do it or because it's an external expectation? So I struggle with that, like, really checking myself to make sure that what I'm doing and the path that I'm following is the path that I want to follow because I want to follow, not because I feel I should. I'm actively trying to show compassion towards myself. That's something that I'm like actively trying to do and being really aware to do it. I love that. And what would you tell someone just starting out on this journey? I want to keep the message that I said um, before that is it's never too late to celebrate life and just open your eyes and your minds and your hearts to whatever life has in store for you i think you have to really get to know yourself but understand that as life changes you change as well so have the flexibility to change with life in order to allow yourself to celebrate life every day. Beautiful. Mariana, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a joy to have you here. I'm still choked up after all of this. <laughs> no, it's been a joy to be here with you. And um, I love the show and it's an honor to be a part of it. And there you have it. Mariana, thank you so much again for coming on the show and sharing so beautifully with us. And thank you for listening. If you would like to send Mariana a message, you can do so on Twitter at Mariana Logon, L-O-G-O-N. And you can find me at Jess C as in Celebration Lively on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. For show notes for today's episode, hop over to JessLively.com slash Mariana Lopez Gonzalez. Before I share who's coming up next week on the show, let's talk with Home Chef member Adele about today's sponsor, HomeChef.com. Adele, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Adele. I'm from upstate New York. I'm a mom to a little boy, and I work for a major computer company as a project manager. And in my spare time, I'm an autism advocate, and I love to do anything crafty, and I enjoy cooking. So when you say that your name is Adele to people, do they ever think that you're the singer? Yeah, they ask me to sing all the time, and I have to tell them I had the name first. <laughs> That's so funny. So how does Home Chef work? Because I know you're a big fan. I'm a huge fan. So what we do is every week I will log in either on their website or use the app that's on my phone. 
and I will see what meals they have coming up for the following week. From there, I just choose what looks best to me. There are several to choose from. I put them in my cart and then I just, it ends up coming to my home every week. It's so great. I mean, it's just easy to, there's a box on my back door, all this food and it's packaged wonderful. It's just very simple to do. How many meals a week do you typically order? Typically I get three and there's two of us. So it works out good. But if you want to add more or add less, you can do that as well. And what makes Home Chef different from other meal delivery services? The best part of Home Chef is, number one, I think the flavor. But I think that the options are for the number of meals are better than other services. I've always seen that there's a lot more to choose from. Some of the services actually, you know, you only have maybe five or six meals to choose from. And then once you choose one, the other options are not available anymore. This way I have, like I said, a ton to choose from. The flavor is wonderful. Everything is always fresh. I'm just beyond pleased with them. And what about the cost? The cost is great. The price point is perfect. I've compared it to even going out to dinner, let's say for something that you think is cheap like McDonald's. And I end up spending about the same price that I did with Home Chef. The other thing is going to the grocery store. I don't have to go to the store as often. It saves on things like, you know, you go to the store, buy a meal, and then you're like, oh, those look great. Let's put that in my cart or this looks great. Let's add that. And then you end up spending way more money. So I end up saving money in the long run by using Home Chef. And what's your favorite part about Home Chef? My favorite part about Home Chef is that, you know, I work all day and then I have to go pick up my son from school. And by the time I'm done with that, you know, I don't have a ton of time to make meals and do a lot. The meals are very quick, usually about 30 to 40 minutes. And I'm able to have a a healthy and tasty meal for my family in, you know, a short amount of time. So for anyone who wants to give this a try and get a free meal for two. So if you want to get a free meal with your first purchase, go over to homechef.com backslash lively and enter the code lively at checkout. Again, you can go over to homechef.com backslash lively and enter the code lively at checkout to get a free meal with your first purchase. Adele, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. And now for a sneak peek. Next Thursday on the show, we are speaking with the one and only Jasmine Star of jasminestar.com. All the photographers in the house probably know already who Jasmine is, but for those who are new to Jasmine, she is a fantastic lifestyle and wedding photographer who has now transitioned into helping entrepreneurs to grow their brands. Jasmine's own photography career has been pretty prolific, going from law student to very, very well-known photographer, and I'm so excited to share her episode with you. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 